We're closing our series on belonging this week, aren't we? Yes, mm -hmm. we are. And we have been talking about belonging over the past few weeks, um, both this external process of belonging to different communities and different groups, things like that, but also really as this internal journey as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Discord has been really great for crowdsourcing different tips and things on belonging and collecting some stories. So please feel free to continue using that today as we close up this discussion. And we've hoped to cast a vision of what it can actually look like in practical ways to find belonging here in this particular community too. And we'll definitely circle back to that at the end of this talk. Um, so for today, we're gonna talk more about belonging to one another. The real gift that that is and some challenges that that yeah. definitely brings. I think that individualism, along with a lot of other forces, can really lead us to think that we are alone in the world or that we don't need others, that we can only rely on and trust ourselves. But the reality is, and I think we all know this to some extent, is that we are bettered by community. Mm -hmm. We need the perspectives and experiences of others to really shape us and deepen our sense of connection and belonging. So if we are going to envision a Jesus-centered approach to our belonging, which is our hope, it's mm -hmm. our goal, it must be one that holds both the beauty and the tension of being tethered to other humans who are really complex and messy, and that's yeah. what we're gonna talk about today. Yeah, it makes me think about your, uh, the first week on belonging, you mentioned either or thinking, and we can often get into that mindset. Mm -hmm. It's like, either the community is perfect and everybody is kind to each other at all moments, there is never problems, or I, I tried that and they were mean to me or something, you know, like yeah. there, there's this real either or thinking that is a challenge. So we want to talk about, um, I think the first uh, beat that we wanted to go on is uh, talking about conflict. Yeah. Um, belonging community is something we all want to talk about, but we can't have it without conflict resolution. And that's something we want to talk about less. So um, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of like reasons uh, conflict might happen in a community like ours. Uh, so one is like differences in background, opinion, or personality. Uh, we say this a lot about BLC. We say it like in our welcome every week, but like we are very intentionally a space where not everyone comes from the same religious assumptions or backgrounds or experiences. Even people within Christianity, it's mm -hmm. like which tradition of Christianity, there's lots of variants. And sometimes we don't realize how attached we are to a certain type of prayer or a certain uh, belief or a certain worship, like types of worship songs mm -hmm. or something, right? Uh, certain routines, or even, even like certain personality traits that a whole community can take on. Like, is, is this place more earnest or is it more sarcastic? You know, like uh, there, there are little things that... Um, that uh, if we're not, if, until we are confronted with a space that normalizes something different, we don't realize how attached we were to those mm -hmm. things. And so conflict can arise from that in settings like ours. And I can remember ex lots of examples in the decade of this church where the conflicts that arose out of such realizations went really well. Like people like, learned about each other and got curious and asked questions and respected each other. And honestly, I can remember lots of examples from the decade of this church so far where it didn't go so well. And people really like uh, avoided and avoided and then eventually disappeared and never like thought to like maybe ask a question or, or, or approach something because that's really scary and that can be hard to do. Um, people who, you know, sometimes people have taken things personally and then, you know, and, and, and come up with generalizations yeah. that, uh, that might, may or may not be totally true. So... Yeah, it's, it, it's messy. It is. And I think it's really important just to name the role that having assumptions about other people's plays, especially yeah. in religious communities and faith communities. Um, there's almost this like surface level acceptance of holding the tension. I think I don't, it'd be rare to find a place that's like, we're not welcoming. We're like explicitly, we are not welcoming. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. like we welcome people from all backgrounds. What a great value! But yeah, then you see. all. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining like the the church on the corner that's like you're not welcome here. <laughs> exactly. But so we have this the surface level idea of like everyone's welcome here. But then there's this underlying assumption. I think this can take place in this community too. Sure, of like, well, sure. but actually, everyone here really does think like me and believe what I believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's this like this tension between this great value and the reality that it's really easy to just assume that because you've landed in a similar place, people must fall in line with yeah. everything that you align with. But we all have such different experiences and different backgrounds. Yep. There is definitely going to be a lot of overlap and commonality, but there's also going to be a lot of diversity of thought and yes. experience. And yes. that doesn't have to be a threat that can really enrich community. Absolutely. Getting away from that either or again. It yes. is not a threat. It is. It's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, other things that might cause conflict in a community like ours is differing expectations on what a friendship is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being caught in the middle once um, of one person in Brownline Church who was like uh, in a space where they were actively looking for more friends. They just moved here. Uh, and then uh, caught, I was caught in the middle between that person and another person whose like sort of relationship spots were all filled up. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody gave me the image of a Lego block. You know, like once, once all the Lego blocks are filled up, you can't attach any more pieces. And, and I remember that was really hurtful for the person who's actively looking for friends because it, it, it's really hard. Like when, oh, I, w- I was thinking we were this and, and, and you were thinking, and that's not necessarily like anyone did anything wrong or it was anyone's mm-hmm. fault, but it's just that's the messiness of, of community. I remember, let's see, what, what other things that uh, cause conflict? Microaggressions can mm-hmm. cause conflict in a space like that. I mean, I remember being the perpetrator of a microaggression once to a friend of mine in Brownline Church, and they were so gracious to me in response as they confronted me, and that taught me a lot about conflict, about good conflict. Um, romantic relationships, mm-hmm. starting and ending, can uh, like sometimes ending, sometimes new romantic. I mean, all of that can be really can can be really difficult for a community, right? I remember being in a circle of friends in my early twenties, and like one particular relationship starting was really difficult for another person in that circle because mm-hmm. it was like unrequited love, you yeah. know, and that was really difficult. Like that can happen in a, in a community like ours or, or when, when relationships sometimes end, like the ripple effects can cause a lot of goodbyes and confusion and it might not be necessarily anybody's fault, but it's, but it's hard and, yeah. it, and it presents problems. Yeah. I think all of these that we've named so far, it's not necessarily a direct conflict. Like sometimes we can think of, There's we no can have this perception of conflict mm-hmm. as it being some type of like aggressive act yes. or something, some yes. major, but these are all just things that may not even be intended to have a ripple effect to affect yeah. more than just the people involved. And I, and I think that's what we want to focus in on today because there yeah. are stories we can tell. Frankly, they're, they're, and maybe, maybe they, they're, they're a time uh, or a, a message for another time mm-hmm. about what happens when there's aggression or when there's abuse or things like that. But just in, in, in the day in, day out of like we're trying to belong and we're trying to belong in a community, there are these things where not necessarily anybody being inappropriate or being wrong or being bad or being at fault. It's just conflict happens mm-hmm. and, we to, and we need to normalize that. Uh, the last one of just our list of like things that might yeah. cause conflict in, in, in our communities, generational misunderstandings, right? Like, do you all know that if you were born in like, or if you came of age, I should say, if you came of age in like the 70s or the 80s, your relationship to your calendar is so freaking different than people who came of age in the 90s, right? You realize that? Like, so, and then all of you came of age like post 2000. I don't even know. I don't even know how you, like, <laughs> like, do you even keep it? No, I'm just joking. So, like, but, but it's all, like, you're, those little things change based on just, like, as, as culture changes, as generations change and come of age in different times. So that can cause conflict. Yeah. 
another one that comes to mind for me, and I, I used to think this was just a me thing, but I've read enough about it and I've heard from other you. people. It's, it's not, not just, just me. Okay. Yeah. So as a millennial, I use a lot of exclamation points in written communication, like in texts and emails, <laughs> so much so to the point where I'm like, okay, I can't use too many. Like I want to make sure they know I'm happy, like, I'm in a good mood. You have like a, you have like a, There's like like a ration dr- yes. for your <laughs> But I don't want to come off as like too much, too aggressive. Yeah. But... Older generations tend to use more periods in written communication and text and emails. And I have definitely had moments where I've internalized that as, oh, this person is like shutting down the conversation or they're mad at me. They're annoyed, all of that. (laughs) Gen Z even, I didn't know this was a thing. You can go in and change your settings on your phone so that all of your things are lowercase like uppercase letters. You can't use uppercase at at all? At the start of sentences. I don't know. I'm just saying all of these different things, they seem so minor, but it can really lead to different misunderstandings of tone in text. It's the difference between like, yes and yes, you know, like (laughs) that. That's it. Yeah. That's that's a big difference. something I think about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 I I think about, um, sometimes we can assign, uh, we can, we are talking about making generalizations Mm -hmm. and sometimes we can, based on whether it's generational differences or something else, we might like, um, we might you know, call somebody something like, oh yeah. my gosh, like they're so, uh, they're, they're too much, right? Like mm-hmm. you're saying, or, or, oh gosh, they're so flaky, right? Like little things yeah. like that can, I don't know, like those are, the, it's really easy for us to jump to drawing conclusions. And that can be a place where it, it's easy to do that because it evades, it feels like it evades conflict. I just, ah, it's just, it, that, that is what it is. I label that person and then I can escape it. But I don't know, like maybe, maybe we're missing the chance to actually talk there. Yeah, the, um, the point that you had about calendar and yeah. commitment differences yeah, yeah. with that word flaky. Oh, yeah. That one, I understand it, and it really hits a nerve with me, really? actually, as yeah. someone who has both mental illness and chronic illness. Mm. Um, and I think that this goes beyond mm. generational differences with thinking mm-hmm. about calendars and can get into some ableism as well. Mm-hmm. But thinking about the difference between having limits and boundaries and someone being flaky, yeah. um, I it brings to mind for me, two of my closest friends have been friends from childhood um, and we all live in different places now and rarely get to see each other. We also all deal with different um, mental and chronic illnesses too. And so when we are in the same place at the same time, we have still developed this uh, kind of accepted flakiness Mm. is what I've called Mm. it. Mm. Um, And we realize that it's not personal if even if this is the one time a year that we're all back in Massachusetts where I'm from, if one of us cancels and can't be there, it's not something that I take personally. Mm. Or if I need to cancel last minute, it's not something that they take personally. Um, and I think it's just super helpful to have that common ground of understanding in this particular re- relationship yeah. that the intention and the meaning is there and the desire to be together and connect is there. But sometimes just the reality is there isn't the capacity in that day yeah. um, to actually follow through and be together. That just seems so incredibly healthy that you that this group of friends has named that mm-hmm. and talked about that so that it's it's out of the way. and. You don't have to have the wonderings and the generalizations happening. I mean, that just seems so healthy. And yeah, I, 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 I like it. I think it, it feels really good. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Yeah, so what do we do in terms, what, 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 is, what does it mean if, if those are the threats, possible threats to uh, you know, a community, or if we can see them as not threats when we are, we're trying to facilitate belonging? I think some of the things I think about is a healthy community acknowledges these things and doesn't try to pretend that they're not mm -hmm. happening. Um, that's a little bit of what we've tried to do, just in sort of giving a laundry list of like, hey, by the way, you might be in conflict for this or that <laughs> reason. Um, we want to acknowledge this. We don't want to pretend that those things don't happen. We don't want to like put it, you know, like think that we can accomplish things just by like a checklist of saying we're welcoming and so therefore nobody will have any problems ever. That's not true. Um, and uh, oh, I lost my notes here. Yes. Yeah, so. Um, one of my favorite quotes on this matter um, is, uh, is actually a quote, it's about healthy marriage from uh, a marriage expert named John Gottman who became famous for a research project over like several, several years that demonstrated that he could witness, he could watch a couple arguing for three minutes and determine with like absurd accuracy, like 90% plus accuracy, whether that marriage would continue or end in divorce. It was like, people were like, who is this guy? and what have you yeah. discovered? And, uh, and his, like, if he boiled it down to one phrase, what he discovered is, it's not how much you fight, it's how you fight. I think it's a wonderful quote. And I think it applies to community as much as it applies to a partnership. If we belong to one another, we have to be committed to fighting well, not pretending that fights don't happen. Being humble enough to acknowledge our own individual tendencies toward defensiveness or criticism or name-calling or avoiding and then trying our best to give the benefit of the doubt. Like I, I remember learning as a prayer practice the idea of um, turning judgments into wonder, mm -hmm. making this a prayer that you actually do in your head. When I find myself saying like, why would they blah, 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 fill in the blank. Why would they, oh, why, why would you do that? Blah, blah. Switching that to, and in, in my mind, it's a prayer of, I switch it to, I wonder why they, because even that is like that tone thing of like, it's a shift. It's, and instead of why would they, it's, I wonder why they, and that, that to me has felt really helpful. Yeah. It's, it it kind of sounds like tricking yourself, but it really works for me. Yeah. No, I, I, it's, it's leading with curiosity, yeah. which I think is yeah. really important. Yeah. So along with conflict, we also want to talk about family today. Um, and we've kind of been referring to this as the belonging you don't choose, yeah. which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because you have this unique nature of being a part of your family of origin, and that deeply impacts you, and it impacts your sense of belonging, and it's not a community that you necessarily choose to right. be a part of. And you get all of these things, like your conflict management style, your oh values, your how communication. Much, how my dad I am. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, though. All of these things often form because of your family yes. or in spite of yes. your family. Yes, that too. Um, in her book, Braving the Wilderness, where she talks a lot about belonging, Brené Brown has a chapter uh, that she titled, People Are Hard to Hate Up Close, mm -hmm. Move In. Mm -hmm which I really like. Um, and for many of us, I think our most up-close experiences are with family. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to overgeneralize here because I know that there's just such a vast array of experiences when it comes to family. Um, but I do think that a trend I've seen is that with family, there can be a greater acceptance of how complex people are. Um, because we have this sense of hope of how a person should or may fill a particular role what having a parent might feel like or should feel like, how siblings should act together, and whether or not that ideal really matches the reality that's in front of you, sometimes in really small ways, sometimes in really big, drastic ways, there's still this underlying acceptance of like, 
oh, but it's my dad. Yeah. Or, oh, you know, it's just grandma being yeah. grandma. Like, Even there's, that phrase, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. right. There's this acceptance of the complexity. Yeah. Because I think there's some, to some extent, this required closeness. Sure. And so there's greater permission to really see through just the messiness of being human, the character flaws, the disagreements, all of that, and actually look and hold on to the, uh, the best in people. Yes, yeah. And I've been thinking about it this week, and I think that in family settings... Often, not always, but connection and love are often this accepted common ground. Even if it's not the felt reality, it's mm. still what's hoped for, mm-hmm. that that should be what the common ground is. And our experiences either confirm it or go against it. Mm. Whereas in other settings, connection and love with one another, really belonging to one another, is not the starting point. Yeah, It feels like the, something that you have to earn. You have to get there. Yes, yeah. it's not just yeah, a given. that's interesting. Um, and when... In this chapter, people are hard to hate up close, move in. Uh, Brené Brown gives some examples of what this up-closeness tension might look like, and she uses political rhetoric to do so. Uh, Of course. So she gives for an example a statement like, insert political party here, are all selfish and ignorant. And your experience is like, yes, well, except for my cousin, Mm. who is a part of that, but is always so generous and welcoming and kind, they're not selfish and ignorant. Mm -hmm. And so there's this tension of like things that may feel true, but then when you actually think about the concrete relationships within your often family settings, Mm. because it's that up closeness, Mm. that may not actually be true. Yes. Um, And so I think that there's some really interesting tension here of like family and familial identity can really be the source of some of the most intense conflict and deep pain. And it can also, I think, be the most resilient source of belonging. Mm. And that's super interesting Yes, to me. yeah, that, I mean, there, there's a lot there, especially even as we, as we try to take what we can learn from our families, whether in spite mm-hmm. of or because of, and, and apply that to these other relationships. And, and that idea of it is hard to hate up close and, and not live my life seven layers away from people where it's easy to hate, yes. but try to live more up close. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, there is a lot there. Yeah. That's uh, the note bookmarked for the future. I think we can, yeah. go, we can go places there. We're talking about family of origin, maybe, as a church. Um, if you're interested in that, drop it in, drop it in Discord. We want to know what you want to hear more about in that term. And the one last thing I'll say about that, too, is I think, for me, the biggest takeaway with thinking about how we can almost take this um, belonging as the backbone or this responsibility almost mm. in family mm. to make sure that belonging feels true, that that can be applied to other communities. Mm. And we see this in scripture, often familial language is mm. used. Like people are described as brothers and we sisters. We are the brothers and sisters in Christ. There's yeah, different right, yeah. imagery and metaphor that come yeah. out of family. And so I think that there's this idea of both allowing people to be complex, messy, full humans yes. and hoping for the best in others and feeling committed to one another mutually that exists um, if we can take like the, our best hopes for what family could be uh-huh. and bringing that into other communities yeah, too. Yeah, church, church as family is, I think, a... Uh, an analogy that's all over the New Testament, which would be worth us kind of, you know, taking those taking those scriptures and working them a little bit and seeing how that how that can affect our community, and then also just like I I heard a definition of of um, of like community, good like you have you have a lot of um, you have you have a lot of belonging in your mm-hmm. life to use the language from this series, and the 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 definition was like. Um, going, uh, doing, being f- there for somebody in the way most people are only there for kin, and I like that. That feels yeah. that, that 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 feels like uh, worth um, worth discovering more. Yeah, yeah, as we think about belonging and community. Um, 
another another topic we wanted to hit as we as we close the book uh, this weekend on talking about belonging for the last month is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is another inevitability in belonging when we talk about conflict, when we talk about um, you know family of origin and maybe the way that we bring things in. I mean, you know, speaking of why we have conflict, our families of origin, right? <laughs> that's that's a reason we have conflict. Um, Forgiveness is a constant teaching in in Jesus's ministry. Uh, one of one of I just think the uh, scripture that I want to zoom in on today is uh, Jesus on the cross, the victim of mob violence, praying, "Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing." Which I mean, that like if we just step back and and take a look at that, at what's being expressed in that moment, like. I, I, I think I think we we need to we need to lean into that scripture because mm-hmm. if we read it quickly, we maybe attach a lot of meanings to it that are not actually there. Like, does that mean repress your feelings, bottle it up, right? Forgive them if they know not what they're doing. I I'm I'm just I'm not going to feel anything. I'm not going to feel them. Bottle it up. Like, is is that what Jesus is saying to do, or is it uh, like another version of this? Is like, it's okay. I forgive them. I'm not mad. They're, they're just ignorant. <laughs> I'm not mad. I've, for, I've forgiven them. It's okay. I'm not mad. You know, like if, you're, if you've ever done that or if you've ever experienced someone do that, you realize like, are you sure you're not mad? You know? Um, and it's like, so what is, what is going on there that Jesus can say, forgive them for they know not what they're doing? Because I, I think it has, if, if we just read it quickly, we yeah. might think like, Oh man, I don't know. Like the, the even the image of like when I when I like self disclose if I meet somebody for the first time and they're like you're, you're a, oh you're a pastor you know they kind of think like oh my gosh like you must be you you, you must be bottling it all in <laughs> so yeah or yeah. even I think this brings up this idea of forgive and forget oh yeah which yes. is not an accurate portrayal of forgiveness that yeah. we see modeled in Jesus yeah. and in scripture but. In this case, it's like, oh, there's this is violent. Jesus is forgiving and forgetting. Okay. But you know, just it's forgive okay. and forget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it has to be more than that, and it also can't be like, I, I forgive you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgive you. <laughs> it's it's got there's something else going on there. So when I think of what forgiveness really means, when I think of that, like what what's happening when Jesus says forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Um, I think of a quote from a French um, activist, philosopher, mystic um, uh, named uh, Simone Weil. Uh, she wrote in the early 1900s, died young, unfortunately, but I'm going to put a quote up on the screen here because I love it so much. She said, pain and suffering are a kind of currency passed from hand to hand until they reach someone who receives them but does not pass them on. Hmm. Until they reach someone who receives them but does not pass them on. Forgiveness is when, after receiving pain, after having been hurt, you've had it passed to you somehow due to some sort of reality internal to you, you're not driven to pass it on, and so the cycle stops. I think Jesus is able to genuinely say, forgive them for they know not what they do because there's some sort of reality that Jesus is experiencing internally. He is settled. He is at peace in the love of God. He, like, he feels no drive to prove himself because he knows he belongs. He feels no drive to even scores because the belonging that he feels is not as fragile as, as we sometimes make it out to be when we feel so hurt. And, and when these are the realities that make up one's internal life, I think forgiveness naturally flows. 
It naturally, when we, when the pain is, is comes to us, it just what flows out of us is forgiveness. So it's not bottling it up. I think it's an outflow of hard internal work yeah. that the entire story of Jesus shows us. So that when we get to the cross and Jesus is able to say that, we've seen the work that's been put in, so that that flows out of him. Yeah, I. Um there's a, a term that I've picked up in therapy called radical acceptance yeah. that I think fits in really well yeah. here. And I've seen this also as a really helpful way to kind of clarify what forgiveness is. Um, because I think a lot of the times forgiveness for many people can really feel entrenched in this idea that you're almost okaying whatever mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. This person caused me harm. And if I forgive them, then that's telling them that that's, their actions That makes it okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. That means it'll happen again. Yeah. Yeah. And that can feel like a real betrayal of right. self. Um, and then inevitably all of that internalized pain is going to be passed on yep. and transmitted in some way. Yep. But this idea of forgiveness as an interruption and a lot of inner work, but an yeah. interruption to pain and suffering. Being and past. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love that. And I think you have to have a radical acceptance of what has occurred, yeah. not okaying it in any way, yeah. not giving it your stamp of approval or brushing it away, pretending like it's not a real hard, difficult thing. Um, but actually as a way to say, I'm not going to be stuck in bitterness or yep. anger yep. Um, because those are really exhausting places to be. I mean, honestly, I feel like most days I... I can hardly fathom not keeping score Mm -hmm. and not being fueled up, not ready to pass pain to the next person. You know, like little slights that happen throughout the day and you just like, you know, they build up and you... Uh, it's re- like if, if if I think Simone Vale is, is right that like you know mm-hmm. it's like oh now I have a choice am I going to pass it on or am I going to stop it here with me and I so but I do think I experience this from time to time I think I experience what we see in Jesus and this this being so important for a context like a community where we are trying to belong to one another and give each other the benefit of the doubt I think that I experience this in in prayer from time to time um, the uh, mystics like Simone Vale and 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 others throughout the centuries. Um, there's there's a phrase that many mystics will go back to, which is we become what we behold, mm. and this is the this is the why have a consistent prayer life for mystics. It's why do you need a consistent prayer life? Because you become what you behold, and so if our moments spent to ourself are are spent beholding possessions or things we wish to be our possessions, like we will become driven by the desire for those possessions. If we, if the moments to ourselves are spent beholding our work, we will become defined by our work. On the other hand, if our moments to ourselves are spent beholding a person that we love or admire, we will become more like that person. This is what the mystics say. That will happen. It's just a, it's a natural law of life. You become what you behold. And so that's a really good version of it. And, and, and the, the, the mystics would take it further. If, if our moments to ourselves are spent in prayer, beholding Jesus, we will become more like Jesus. This is the reason for prayer, according to mystics. And, and like I, I, the way I've learned this is this sort of prayer can be like wordless. Like you, don't, you actually don't need to feel like you're, like you're an experienced prayer. Or if you are an experienced prayer, maybe actually you, you, the, the, what this teaches you is to stop talking in <laughs> prayer. Um, I learned once, um, and I, I, you can take this with you if, if it feels helpful, to uh, use your phone's timers. I set timers all the time for prayer. And so I'll just like pull out my phone and set a five-minute timer, and I am quiet. I close my eyes. And I, in that moment, I am beholding in my imagination Jesus. Any story or picture of Jesus that, you know, like you have logged will do, unless it's bad. Like don't, like... <laughs> 
you know, like gun-toting white American Jesus. Don't do that. But you guys are smart. You know, you know what, what Jesus uh, to behold that you want to become like, right? And so, but any story will do. You know, if you, if you have a, if you've, if you've heard a story before, or if you, if you have some sort of image that like grabs you of like, oh, this is something from my childhood that, that speaks to me of God's love or something that you've learned here at Brownline, any imagination of Jesus will do. And you just, mm-hmm. you just sit there and you're wordless and you be, you imagine Jesus in that way. Let the scene play out. And I, like, as Jesus, as I, as I imagine Jesus being kind or being wonderful or being non-anxious or, or like, even being funny, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, you just do that five minutes a day, every single day. Like, it, it's, it's like brushing your teeth, so, like, doing it once probably won't do anything. But if you, if you do it regularly... And that will, like, over time, you will become what you behold, the mystics say. And I, th- I think that is where I have found myself, like, when I'm in my most consistent spaces of doing this, uh, I like to do it in the morning uh, with a cup of coffee, the first thing I do when I wake up, hopefully before my nine-month-old, but not always. Um, <laughs> but I like to just sit there and set a timer and just try to become what I'm beholding in prayer. And, like, this... it. it, it if I'm going to be in a place where I'm not trying to keep score and I am able to let the pain stop being passed with me, it's because I've been doing this. It's because of the, the internal yeah. work ahead of time. I really love that. And I, I think, too, prayer is so interesting because it really is about this both internal and external process right. of belonging. Right. I'm not, I'm, I, it, would be, it would be pointless for me to do this if it was just, if it was yeah. just me. It, it, is, it is affecting my external life, and yet it's internal work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, you, if, if that's attractive to you, um, if you feel like you're a more of an intermediate or like you, you have a lot more experience logged in, in, in prayer and you're ready for more, um, the contemplative mystics of the last like 60 years um, would point to 20 minutes as uh, they're, they're like go-to. This is, what, this is what they try to train people to. It's hard. I will, be, I will warn you. <laughs> it feels real to, so, 20, so 20 minutes of, of quiet uh, and contemplative prayer in, in this sort of imagining Jesus sort of way twice a day. Is what um, is what the contemplatives shoot for. I have I've been in seasons. I currently have a nine month old, so I am not in that season right now. But I've been in seasons in the recent past where I was able to do twenty minutes once a day, and man, do I feel like that was a healthy time in my life. Um, things would come at me, difficult things would frustrate me, and I would not pass the pain. Um, I really do. I mean, like I swear by this. It freaking works. So um, yeah, try to try to shoot for you know what's what's the next increment of five minutes you can get to. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, um, there's one more thing that I wanted to talk about. And I think um, for me, we've already been talking about this a little bit, but really highlighting this um, connection between solitude and togetherness Mm -hmm. and how that forms our belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really, if you have this mutuality of belonging to one another, we are able to both belong to ourselves and to community simultaneously. And I think that both of those really need to be balanced for us to have a solid sense of belonging. Um, In her writing on belonging, Cole Arthur Riley tells the story of watching her dad look at himself in the mirror. And as she was watching him, just the way he was studying his own face and um, looking at himself, she realized that he wasn't actually seeing himself. Hmm. He was just seeing this uh, distorted and reversed image in the mirror. And she was looking at his real face. And just wanted to hold him, wanted to like grab his cheeks and just say like, that's not your face. That's not what you look like. Mm. 
I think it's this really important reminder that allowing our community to mirror back to us what we look like for real, for real, not just our distorted reverse image of ourselves. It helps us know ourselves on a deeper level. Mm. It deepens our sense of belonging. Mm. And it can also, on the flip side, help us have humility when we are maybe tempted to judge someone when we're not quite at the, I wonder why they're doing that when they're just like, why are they doing that? that? Um, that maybe they're just not seeing themselves clearly. Maybe Mm. I'm not seeing myself clearly Mm. and opening yourself up to letting others be this true mirror without being defensive is super hard. Mm. Um, being open to whatever they name about you is really, really vulnerable. Mm. But I think it points to the fact that often we miss our own shortcomings, but for many of us, we also miss our own beauty and our own uniqueness as well. Um, there's this quote from Cole Arthur Riley. I think we're going to put it up mm-hmm. on the screen here. And she writes, we need other people to see our own faces, to bear witness to their beauty and truth. God has made it so that I can never truly know myself apart from another person. I want someone to bear witness to my face that we could behold the image of God in one another and believe in it on one another's behalf. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what I hold to as a vision for a faith community, that Mm. beholding the image of God in one another and believing it on one another's behalf. That's really really beautiful. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I I think for my final thoughts on um, belonging, I want to circle back one more time to the uniqueness of belonging to one another in the context of spiritual convictions, like a church. Um, There is some uniqueness there. Um, If we take any given like value that I'm going to assume, here we go back to where we started, I'm going to assume that we all kind of hold together in this room, um, but if not, we can do good conflict together. Um, <laughs> now, I'm going to take, so any given like progressive value we might subscribe to here, like like a seat at the table for everyone, okay? Like that's, that's a value, you know, kind of like, you know, that we see that up on the, on the church on the corner, right? Mm-hmm. When it's just secular convictions, like liberal economic convictions or political convictions that are behind that value rather than spiritual convictions, I think there's a real ceiling. Like if the only groundings we have behind a seat at the table for everyone are like Coca-Cola commercials <laughs> and a belief in the so-called American dream, I like honestly, I think the evidence is that those convictions aren't powerful enough to hold people together mm-hmm. at, at a table at all. They sound good, but, and, and maybe there's some good in them, but they're also just a little bit anemic. There's a, there's a low ceiling for what they are able to pull off. Systemic injustice and white male supremacy still keep so many from the table. Like the evidence is in on, mm-hmm. on, uh, on what historians call neoliberalism. Like it is just like, I don't know, like I feel like we've had enough time trying to make this project keep everyone and give everyone a seat at the table. And... I, I like not everybody has a seat at the table. It's not equal. We're as polarized as ever, even among those who are at the table, right? And so on the other hand, that's, that's like secular convictions. When we hold to the value of a seat at the table for everyone because of a spiritual conviction, like every single person bears the image of God. Mm-hmm. This is different, right? That is different. That's like, that calls like passion. Like you, you are a, you, I need you to be able to reflect to me the image of God that I can't see because I just see a distorted image in the mirror. Mm-hmm. That is a different, diff, like it's the driving force behind that calls out passion and calls out th- 
places in us that even really, really good secular convictions, like political or economic convictions, can't. They just can't pull those out. And this is the uniqueness, I think, of belonging to one another in the context of spiritual convictions. Obviously, we need to ensure we're talking about like mature spiritual convictions, right? There are plenty of immature spiritual convictions. They are all around us and they are exclusionary and they're about boosting each other's egos and they're about like continuing white supremacy and, and male dominance. So we, we, need to, we, need to talk, we need to make sure we're talking about mature spiritual convictions, not immature ones. But like, man, if we can talk about mature spiritual convictions, every single person bears the image of God. That has, that has, that has, like fuel behind it mm-hmm. that we could never touch with policy or legalese, you know, <laughs> or, you know, like the best political stump speech. Cool, you know, like that's great. But like, I don't know, the, spir- the spiritual digs deeper. And that I think is, it's a, it's a resource that we would be, we would be leaving, it's the most important resource we'd be leaving aside a, a, a if we didn't tap into that when we're trying to belong. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, As we close here, I do want to just end with kind of a last call to action or concrete ways that you can hopefully help to deepen your sense of belonging here. Um, Different opportunities for you to have someone else mirror back to you what you really look like and be a mirror to other people in this community too. So we have a few different options. Um, There's not just kind of one pathway to belonging here. Lots of different options based on where you're at and what your needs might be. So the first is communal matches. I'll just run through these real quick, just as a little reminder. So this is where you are set up to be matched monthly. The next ones are going out. Uh, End of February. End of February. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And this might be, you might be matched with someone in this community that is in a very similar stage of life as you, or maybe in a really different season of life. Um, You can grab coffee, have a meal together, do some type of activity together. And this is just to help you make more connections with a wider range of people so Mm -hmm. that you can show up at the Davis on Sunday and say like, hey, I know that face. We've actually talked before. Mm -hmm. Um, Mentoring is another option as well. So this, Vince uh, helped us kind of look through the importance of intergenerational relationships and how that can actually be a pretty unique feature of faith communities. And we really want to lean into that and encourage that here. So this would be a one-on-one pairing. Uh, Maybe you want to be a mentor to someone Mm -hmm. that is younger than you, or maybe you are looking for a mentor yourself. So you can specify either one of those Mm -hmm. if you express interest in mentoring. And this is for adults and also for kids. And so we're we're setting up mentoring pairings in terms of like, you know, big big sibling type mentoring pairings for um, uh, teenagers and and, and kids. um, And then also for young adults with uh, older adults. Yeah. And for both um, communal matches and mentoring, Vince would be your point person for talking more about that. And then if you are interested in joining or starting up a small group, I would love to talk with you more. Uh, We have a lot of different things that are actively forming right now. So there has been some expressed interest in a podcast discussion group, Mm -hmm. a book club, a couples group, and the most recent one is a nature or hiking or walking group, which I think is really cool. That's a nice idea. I like Um, that. So... There's also, oh, I wanted to mention this too. There's been some interest with online folks who aren't maybe local to Chicago, mm-hmm, but having mm-hmm. a virtual group, and that is definitely an option as well. Um, so there is a general information form that the link would take you to, but you can also feel free to text me or message me on Discord if you have any specific interests in mind that aren't um, something I've already listed. A lot of flexibility there. Great, lovely. 
um, I would love to lead us in prayer. And I think I'm going to try to lead us in, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to set a timer for five <laughs> minutes, and we're going to uh, take that time uh, to pray. Um, so what we're doing, again, as I was saying before, is we are trying to become what we are beholding. We, we may or may not have an experience in this moment doing this. That's okay if you don't have something that feels to you like spiritual movement, because again, this is like brushing your teeth. If we do it once, we probably won't have healthy teeth, but if we do it regularly, that's when we start to see the benefits. Um, but I want us to you know, give, give, give us a chance to do it. So we're gonna imagine, we're gonna imagine Jesus doing something. Um, I'm gonna play a game here. Give me a Jesus story. Somebody, shout one out. Loaves and fishes. Okay, so Jesus feeding tons and tons of people who have gathered. That is what we're imagining in our head. Jesus feeding tons and tons of people who have gathered, okay? All right, I'm going to set a timer. We're going to be quiet. I might lead us in some deep breaths to begin just to kind of help us feel safe with we're going to be quiet for five minutes, and that's a long time, and then uh, we're off and running. Sound good? All right, great. Take a deep breath in, and a deep breath out. Deep breath in, and a deep breath out. One more deep breath in, and a deep breath out. And you can, I encourage you to keep your eyes closed, but if it helps you to just kind of focus on you know, one thing in the theater that you just ha that has your, has your eyes gripped, that can help us if we're a distractible person. I want you to imagine Jesus feeding tons of people. Imagine Jesus' face, what his facial expression is like what his body language is. Imagine the body language and the facial expressions of those Jesus is feeding. Where are you in the scene? Are you watching from afar? Are you one of the people being fed? Are you one of the disciples that Jesus is handing food to to distribute among the people?
And at this point, usually in a prayer, I imagine myself pulling Jesus aside and saying, here are all the things that I'm distracted by right now. Here are all the stresses running through my brain. Do you know what happened to me last week? Oh, you do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you know what's on my plate for this week upcoming? Oh, yeah. You know that too. Okay. And I just, I just kind of unload for a little bit and let Jesus see me. I am so burdened. There are so many demands on me. I'm so distractible. Ugh. I call myself names. And for this last minute, I want you to imagine Jesus' facial expression and body language as Jesus looks at you. One more deep breath in with me. And out. And that was five minutes. <laughs> we did it. You can do it again, right? That's good. That's good. Fifteen more. Fifteen. <laughs> see, now you see how difficult it is to become a mystic. But perhaps we can reach someday to get to 20 minutes. And, uh, and the health will just be teeming out of us. It. It'll be amazing. Um, it was good. It's good to do that together uh, with you all. And I do hope that you can kind of take that practice with you as we go ahead.